Welcome to Pivotal. I'm Hayat Gelo, Corporate Vice President for Commercial Solutionaries at Microsoft. I get to work with customers around the world to help them transform their business through technology. At the center of every transformation are people who give technology its purpose. They are the ones who spark visionary ideas for leveraging technology and have the drive to push them forward for their business while empowering others. We like to talk about technology. I know I like to talk about technology. And we often forget the heroes behind technology and transformations. You, we forget you. And that's what I want to talk about through Pivotal. Serendipity. We've all been there. When everything is fitting together, when things are flowing, you're just in the right place at the right time, and you get this aha moment. And today we're gonna meet someone who made it his mission to systemize that serendipity in the workplace. And his organization is repaying those rewards. Jenny Giacomelli is a senior advisor for innovation at Gempact. But he's much more than that. He works at the Collective Intelligence Design Lab at MIT. And recently, he also founded Supermind Design. It's a company that is dedicated to using the power of artificial intelligence to tackle climate change and other global issues. So he's got a lot on his plate and a lot on his mind. But for Jenny, that's just the way he likes it. Ever since he was a little boy, he's been interested in the intersection of technology and neuroscience. I was born in Florence, Italy, but I ended up living most of my life elsewhere. And I was trained in economics. I did a bunch of social psychology, a bunch of business. I ended up in dot-com in the early part of the uh, uh, dot-com time, so the late 90s. I was a consultant first and then worked for a startup. Then I ended up working in software and technology-related innovation since then. I moved around a lot. I've been living in five countries, including France, UK, India, uh, you know, clearly Germany, where I am now in Berlin, and I lived in New York for uh, almost 10 years. I ended up straddling a little bit that intersection of innovation with service innovation. So where innovation is done on processes, on people and on technology and not just encapsulated in uh, technology. So really, technology can be about people, about finding creative ways to get people to knowledge, to the data or the connection they need to thrive at work. Well, people have evolved slowly over long periods of time Technology doesn't have that luxury. As quickly as the system is built, people will find the problems with it or ways to think about how it can be improved. We started initially with workflows, right? Workflows are the equivalent of, I don't know, the neural structure of a dinosaur, right? So it's pretty fixed. It does its job pretty well. You don't want to be on the wrong side of the dinosaur when the dinosaur is close to you. But it cannot do a bunch of things. And I think social psychology kind of increasingly helped us understand how to think more fluidly about adaptation, about non-deterministic reactions to uh, stimuli. And then that really helps you design systems in a very different way. In other words, it's not just about what you start with and where you end up. It's about what the process looks like in between. Empowering people with the latitude to do everything they might want to do. As technology evolves, we're also beginning to understand more about the human brain and how those two superpowers, technology and brain, can interact with each other. 
human psychology abstractions are in the end neuroscience driven our children will know everything about it we know a little bit about it now and that is the way you connect the dots between what happens in the space of technology and what happens in the space of understanding of human behavior and when you really manage to match the two you end up creating things that work you see products that work not just that they do the human side well, which is, you know, engaging people, but also work at a systemic level because they make the network more intelligent. We have increasingly good tools that allow us to design around the human, but also around the human networks. Those are two very different things. Uh, Microsoft has been working a lot along those lines, and I think we're just scratching the surface of what's possible. So this sounds all very theoretical at this point. But Jenny... He's been putting these theories on human networks to the test at Genpact for the last 10 years. So Genpact is a broadly an IT services firm, uh, spin out of uh, General Electric. It used to be the back office of General Electric 20 years ago. It uh, became an independent company, traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And what we do is really we deliver operations at large scale. Increasingly, the, those operations are digitally driven. So it's technology you need to have things that allow you to do data engineering and data analytics and embed that into the flow of work. This data work became even more intriguing for Jenny after COVID. Work was disrupted, people scattered, and we saw the beginning of the Great Resignation. And what a lot of experts were focusing on inflation and pay scale. Well, Jenny took a broader view and he discovered that the problem is a lot more complicated than just the number on a paycheck. There's a step in between salary and attrition. That is, am I able as a person to connect meaningfully with other people around me and do my best work, express myself as a person, but also as a professional and feel that I'm going somewhere? And I do think that this network analysis is missing in most of the analysis that we see around resigning and, uh, and the great resignation. Really, If you don't feel engaged in a company, you're more likely to attract. But engagement isn't just about salary. You don't coin-operate engagement. So engagement is really about having an infrastructure around you, processes, cultures, everything, including tools, right, that allow you to connect better and more fruitfully with the people around you. And that means that if that is not paid attention to, many people will feel that they are not able to tap into that super mind, into that bigger brain, and as a result, they cannot do as good as a job as they could. That has two consequences. One is the sense of pride and the sense of accomplishment. People show up and want to feel that they've achieved something. The other reason is back to the paycheck. Typically, I mean, this it's not one-to-one -one because it's true that some people do great things, but they're not recognized. But by and large, if you do great things, chances are that you will be recognized and your salary will also be impacted. So if you think of a big international company like Genpact as a super brain, and each of their employees like a node within that brain, the question is, how do you get the node to connect? Jenny put this connection into two categories, strong ties, weak ties. The strong ties are those people that you see on a daily basis. You sit next to them in the office, or maybe you're just regularly in the same meetings. Weak ties are those folks that you recognize but might not talk to all that often. 
maybe someone you just say hi to as you walk by, but you don't really engage in any real conversation. So both of these ties are equally important. Strong ties, they keep an organization running, but weak ties, they spark creativity and novelty and they drive culture. But Jenny identified that remote work during the pandemic has hurt one a lot more than the other. It was a little bit of, you know, mild amount of panic that actually made people focus on the job at hand. And incredibly, and thankfully, we ended up delivering on what we had to do, which, which was keeping the machine going. And we learned a ton of things. But what happened is those strong ties remain pretty much intact. Actually, if anything, became stronger. And that's what allowed companies to keep on running what they were running. Now, weak ties are the people around you that you bump into periodically. The importance of those ties is now very well understood, is incredible. It helps individuals prosper, be more effective in what they're trying to do, especially when they are in, I wouldn't call it just innovation jobs, but in problem, complex problem solving. You really want to have a lot of weak ties because the weak ties bring novelty to you. They bring diversity of thinking. You bounce off ideas, you learn about things from the larger enterprise network. So they literally are a part of what I call, we call at MIT a supermind. So the supermind is built around you and those weak ties are really a big part of your brain. In situations like COVID-19, those ties dwindle. The great thing about this dilemma is that Gempact has a clear picture of the problem. They've been able to examine the interaction between various groups and individuals by using Viva Insights data. They also know that if they can make those weak ties stronger, they will see a host of benefits. More innovation, less attrition for the company, but also more potential for personal growth and financial prosperity for individuals. They just needed to figure out how to do a little fine-tuning. Almost like, um, again, I'm dating myself, but uh, we used to have graphic equalizers on our high fidelity. Remember the stereo thing? I don't know. Probably our kids don't do that anymore. But, and you want to boost part of the signal. In this case, you really want to boost the weak ties of the signal. You want people to connect when they are weak ties to each other. And so the network analysis allows us to identify the pairs of people who are weak ties to each other. And this sounds intuitive, but when you're talking about a 100,000 people company, well, it's a big table. (laughs) Jenny and his team at Gempack started working on a system they call Spark Moments. It's like a digital water cooler where serendipitous meetings can happen between people who otherwise might not interact during their normal day. But how do you bring people together for small, intimate conversation? when you have such a huge pool to draw from. If they started setting up meetings that were not useful, that felt like a waste of time, well, people would stop showing up. The system would fail before it even had a chance to get off the ground. Jenny knew that artificial intelligence could help them figure this out. In the Office 365 stack, you have the ability to to have data to the analytics side, but you also can build applications that look at your calendars. So suppose that you and I are weak ties. We literally have a bot that pairs us up. 
and we need to do zero work, you and I. The only thing that we need to do at the very beginning is to say, yes, I want to participate. And, oh, by the way, I want to have this amount of diversity in my meetings. Right? Don't, you know, some people prefer to have little adversity, meaning they want to meet people who kind of belong to the same network. They are not strong ties, but they kind of belong to the same networks. Other people say, no, you know, bring it on. I want to meet people at the periphery of my uh, enterprise field of vision. And so by engineering the algorithm like that and creating a, uh, a, you know, having a bot that really is your virtual assistant, we reduce the friction, but also we make the encounters more powerful because they're not random. And just as important as setting up the right people at the right time is knowing when you need to give people a break and protect them from burnout. Uh, there's quite a lot that has to be said about the power of deep work, the power of resting the brain from the interaction. So all of that is baked into the algorithm. And what the beauty of the algorithm also is, is that it creates longitudinal data about what works. People met, people didn't meet, people cancelled. What made them stay? What made them leave? And that can be mined increasingly through machine learning, which is the next level up. Jenny was eager to test out Spark moments for himself. In my case, for example, one of the Spark moments was very early on in one of the early meetings with the head of compliance. And I came out of the meeting with a bunch of ideas of not just uh, the Spark, uh, the water cooler thing, but really about HR analytics for the future. So one of the things that we always talk about and was the early research, uh, also together with MIT, was what we call virtual mirrors. And she reminded me that a lot of what we do is not about having the data for us centrally. It's about having the data to place them as a mirror in front of the person so that that person alone can see what their behavior has been and if they like what that behavior was so that it can change if they want to. Essentially, we don't see any of that. We see the aggregates, but we don't see the individual person. And the beauty of that is it makes people feel, oh, you're helping me, you're coaching me, but without really knowing too much about me. Jenny says that while the data can help inform people's work as they try to improve the process, the leaders at Gempack did not want to intrude on people's privacy. The system just keeps track of who meets and when, but that's about it. With all these things about designing superminds, one of the, I think, unspoken rules that I think we need to be very clear about is the ethical side of the story. That also is a bit of an implicit contract with our people, which means I'm not going to trespass. I'm going to stay within my boundaries, and my boundary right here is enablement. I want to give you an experience. I want you to feel that you're part of a community. I want you to feel that you're part of this bigger thing that can work for your emotions, but also can work for your prefrontal cortex in a positive way. But I'm not going to trespass into eavesdropping. Spark Moments is now being used by most of the executive at Gempact. They're continuing to bring more people on board from all levels in the company. It's important that it's not a mandate from the company, but it's just a system that's being championed by employees themselves. In the end, our job is to give superpowers to our people, but superpowers can be misused. You know, somebody said, we have godlike technologies, 
we have medieval institutions and we have paleolithic brains and you know combining those well sometimes is easier than other times and that's the reason why we need to be really careful with how we design uh, technology of this kind so what advice does jenny have for other leaders how do we share our superpowers safely to get to the best results first research what's already out there you may find that the basic building blocks have already been assembled and all you have to do is piece them together second Make sure you have a good grasp on the outcome you're hoping to achieve. Make it flexible enough that you can make some changes if you need to, but don't give your users so many options that it's unwieldy. Yes, power-ups are low-code and they are easy to put together, etc. It is still code and coding needs to be respected. So really scope it tight from a design standpoint. And don't feel like, hey, you know, it's power apps. I can actually change things on a dime. You can, but do you want to? <laughs> and I don't think you want to. It's important to get feedback from someone trained in design thinking before rolling out software. And once you do roll it out, be prepared to be flexible. Jenny says that there is a continuum between tech that is addicting and tech that is boring. And you want your application to fall somewhere in between. You want to be in the middle where there's enough engagement to keep the flywheel turning and this thing to get airborne. But in the end, you want to be meaningful. And design thinking people and experience design people are really good at figuring out what those triggers are for the human brain that then help you code things the right way. In the end, addiction is a data problem and boredom is a design problem. There's no magic wand. Every situation is going to be slightly different, but the data will tell you what is potentially addictive. One other thing that I would really encourage people to think about is we used to build things to last. We need to build things to adapt. You need to have the ability to, by design, know that the plane that you're going to fly isn't going to fly very well at the beginning. And you need to have a modularity embedded into the way you design it so that when you start seeing the data results from the first few runs, you can change the algorithm or you can change the workflows so that you can redirect the plane's design. And this is something Jenny is already tackling with Spark Moments. It's got pretty good adoption of the software. A lot of meetings are taking place. But how do you make sure the participants are getting the most out of their time together? Jenny says sometimes cultural or personal differences can get in the way. I've lived most of my life outside of the place I was born in. And so that made me not particularly smart, but made me really attuned to differences in how people give feedback to each other, for example. And feedback is one of those elusive things that if you get wrong, your network dies. So it literally is like neurotransmitters seizing, firing at each other because they say, oh, I can't communicate with the other person. The kind of network signal that I get back is not what I want you kill the supermind. So you need to get that network feedback right, but also you have different cultures. Some cultures are more direct, some others are more hierarchically driven. People talk about authenticity. What is authenticity to you is maybe not the same as what it is to me. There's an overlap, there's a Venn diagram, but it's not the same. Somebody in Japan, their authenticity is different compared to what it is in India. The analogy is we've created a road system, and we've given everybody a car. We think it's the same rules, it's the same roads, it's the same cars. 
you drive it slightly differently, and I can guarantee you that everybody else will find it really off-putting. You guys are so boring. You drive like grandmothers. Oh, you guys are crazy. I cannot be stressed and I really need to go, you know, with, with a taxi. The same thing happens in collaboration networks. Jenny believes that eventually artificial intelligence could help us bridge those cultural and personal divides. But he says even the AI is still learning while the technology exists. Jenny says it needs more time and more longitudinal analysis before it will be ready for the masses. So I think what's interesting in Jenny's story is that tech can be at the service of human connection and getting this deep engagement that we all want at work. However, you need to be clear on what is the outcome you're looking for, how it fits your culture, And you have to remember you're designing for humans and you need to be responsible. Because if, if you're not responsible, tech can be a very dangerous thing. It's not about spying on people. It's about enabling those human connections. But when you think about it, what Jenny is facing, every customer I talk to has the same challenge. You have to find this balance between what tech can enable you to do And what is right to do? When is it too much? When are you moving to inspecting versus enabling? And that is our responsibility. It is your responsibility. You have to think through this as you're designing how you're going to use that software, that application. And I think that's the key in the story of how Genpak was very thoughtful about how they approached it. Thank you for listening to Pivotal. I'd love to hear your story and your pivotal moment. So don't hesitate to follow me and share on LinkedIn. Audience information is also available in the show notes. Our show is produced by Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media. Special thanks to Lin Yang and our partners at We Communications.